Humans are affecting animals in multiple different ways. Our infrastructure is bleeding into forests, and our way of life is changing how animals adapt to their environments. But are we really aware of how we are impacting animals? Find out today on Boiling Point. Welcome to Boiling Point. My name is Anastasia. I'm going to be your host today. And I am joined today by Dr. Dominique Potvin, a behavioral ecologist, evolutionary biologist, and ornithologist of University of the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia. Dominique studies songbirds and how human activities like city growth, city noise, and changes in land use affect animals. Welcome to the show, Dominique. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're so very welcome. Um, so why, why, why songbirds in, in particular? Why not all birds? <laughs> well, that's actually a really good question. And um, it's very specific, too. Uh, I chose songbirds because they actually have to learn how to sing. So most animals in the animal kingdom, um, when they develop the ability to communicate with each other, especially through sound, so they develop acoustic communication, can do so without any learning. So they just know what to say to get food or to talk to one another or to attract a mate. Songbirds are one of the very few taxa, so this is the, um, or passerines, um, are one of the very few taxa that actually don't know what to say to each other unless they learn from someone of their own species. So if you raised a baby songbird in a box, it would not really know what to say to conspecific, so members of its own species, to get a mate or um, do things like that. Um, it actually has to go through a whole process of learning um, and establishing its its song so that it can sing the right things that others can understand it. Um, and yeah, it's it's really cool because, you know, in the animal kingdom, there are not very many taxa that can do that. Humans can, um, but even our closest primate relatives cannot do this. Um, but songbirds and, um, you know, the other famous ones are uh, cetaceans, so whales and dolphins also do this. Um, but yeah, it's 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 so unique, and so it just means that we've got this like cool system where we can see not just how humans are impacting animals in general, but also how they're impacting things like learning, which is cool. Right. I actually didn't know that. I thought. Um song uh bird song was actually a um uh what do you call it? an instinctual thing and and that's really fascinating that it isn't so i guess is this why it's so important when it comes to mate choice that the female picks a male that has a really nice song like will he be the one to teach his kids how to sing yeah so i mean in a lot of species the song is sung by males to attract females. Um, sometimes, though, song can serve other purposes as well. So it can do things like establish territory boundaries with other individuals. Um, and this can be done by um, a lone male, but it can also be done as a group. So males and females can duet with one another um, and sort of show other birds that maybe 
they are both taken. It's like a little wedding ring or something, <laughs> um, uh, or that they uh, own the territory that they're on or they've established themselves there. Um, but yeah, it, we do think that it is um, in many species a sort of signal of like good health or good condition or or other kind of um, advantages if you get with a good singer. Hmm. So then what comes first, learning how to fly or learning how to sing? Oh, that's a good question. I've never been asked that before. <laughs> <laughs> they kind of happen around the same time, actually. Mm. It's a little bit like... Um, it's a bit like toddlers. They're kind of learning to walk and talk at the same time. <laughs> um, so in many species, uh, they they go through a, a bit of a pattern where they go um, through a period of just listening to those around them. Um, and then they start babbling, essentially. So making sounds that don't really mean anything. Um, and then they can start to develop things like syntax and proper, you know, phrases um, that mean something and they practice and practice and practice those. And then some songbirds um, have something called crystallization, which means um, they can't learn anymore. So once they've established their repertoire of songs and they've got all their songs, um, they can't actually learn anymore. They can tweak things a little bit over their life, but they, they can't really learn big songs anymore. Other birds though, um, other species can, or we call them open-ended learners, can actually keep doing this process over their entire lives. So some really famous mimicking birds, so birds that are mimics, are open-ended learners. Um, like the lyre bird, right? Lyre bird. Yeah. That's right. They're probably the most famous one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess, like, would it be in any way beneficial when the lyre bird like learns all of these different repertoires like a chainsaw like I, you know to me as an evolutionary biologist it just seems like why waste your brain space on that basically right like why why can some birds have this like infinite repertoire of songs yeah, we think that it is selected for so um you know if you can spend the time and energy um you know becoming a virtuoso you're probably not starving hmm. um you know you've probably got some good genes in you and uh you know i've done some research too to show that you know you may even be such a good forager you might be actually a better parent as well if you're a better singer so um yeah there's there's advantages definitely to to kind of really getting that repertoire set and you know different birds do different things so some birds like um, like the lyrebird, you know, use the repertoire size. So the number of songs is really important. Oh. And in other birds, it's actually just what you sing. So if you sing some really tricky um, sounds mm -hmm. that are difficult to learn and difficult to produce, then, you know, that's pretty sexy. So. Right. Okay. So how do you typically conduct your work? Is it a lot of field work and with a lot of like little, you know, speakers everywhere, just kind of like playing bird song to everything? Well, so like what I like to to understand is how 
things like human noise actually impacts this song learning process and how birds um, sing to each other because, you know, birds are everywhere, Mm. right? Like you can be middle of downtown and the biggest city in the world and there will probably be birds there and probably songbirds there. Um, The house sparrow is a songbird and it has to learn how to sing its little chirpy song. Mm -hmm. Um, And it lives in downtown everywhere Mm -hmm. almost. So I don't need speakers necessarily because the soundscape that I'm looking at is already produced by things like cars and trains and Mm. planes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What I need to do is I, when I go out and I do field work is I'm often trying to look at the birds behavior and their songs um, in very noisy areas and then also in quiet areas. So my work is, um, it has to kind of encompass a lot of different aspects because if you ask something like, well, how does noise affect song? Mm-hmm. You can look at this in terms of the evolution of song. You can look at it in terms of individual behaviors. You can look at it in terms of learning, but you can also look at it in terms of how does noise actually affect brain development? Um, because we know that that's thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, or even um, how you move around the landscape. So, um, you know, it encompasses lots of field work, but it also, um, we dabble in things in my lab, like in um, uh, captive studies. So where we can really control the environment and the sound environment and test different kinds of sounds um, and really look at what the birds are doing and how they're dealing with with their the the different soundscapes that might they might be um, exposed to and you know whether they're flexible too Mm. so if you take a city bird and you put it in a country town um, you know does it sound the same or does it change its song so it's it's a really cool field because there's a lot that we know now after about you know people have been doing this for about 20 or 30 years they've been really like trying to understand this stuff but there's still a lot we don't know right (laughs) so So what are you finding thus far in um pertaining to the bird song how does bird song change between the species depending on where they live whether they're a city bird or more of a rural bird yeah so what we consistently find and this is globally so all around the world with lots of different species are that members of the same species will be singing differently when they're in the city. So what we find in the city is that species often sing higher songs. Um, And is that to compensate for all the noise? Yeah. So human noise is really low frequency, low pitch, Uh okay? Rumbling trains and rumbling cars. Um, Birds, if you sing in that same frequency, um, like in that bandwidth, your song becomes acoustically masked. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you have a truck going by and you're trying to sing at the same time, nobody will be able to hear any notes that are in the same range as that truck. Mm -hmm. Um, So we think that it's actually pushing them to, to sing higher because then they can hear each other better Mm -hmm. in, in the city. Um, And I mean, we see this in natural areas too. Um, Birds, tend to avoid um, the notes that a cicada is singing, um, you know, because they're really loud. (laughs) So there's no point because nobody's going to hear you. 
Um, but yeah, we also know that they change when they sing. So um, some species uh, and populations have been shown to like avoid singing at peak hour traffic. Mm. Because again, it's going to be too noisy. Nobody's going to hear you. Mm-hmm. We also see things like them um, slowing down their songs, um, which again, you know, if if you're talking really fast, it's a lot harder to pick out your words in a noisy area mm-hmm. than if you're speaking a little bit slower. And then finally, um, another thing that uh, I've found is that they're actually using different what we call syllables. So with with songbirds, they sing these nice songs that you can equate to kind of sentences and they're using words in those sentences that we call syllables. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, they have like this repertoire, this vocabulary of syllables. But we're finding that in cities, they're actually using different words. They're using different syllables than in the country. Um, And, you know, these might be because some syllables are just easier to hear in that environment. It might be a learning thing where you, you, some syllables are easier to learn or um, maybe they're yeah not as complex. We're not exactly sure why this is happening, Mm -hmm. but it's really interesting because it's very consistent. So it doesn't matter whether you're in Melbourne, Australia or Brisbane, Australia, if you're in the city, you're probably singing the same type of vocabulary, like an urban dialect. Like a different uh, accent or something. Exactly. Yep. So yeah. when you do put these city birds into kind of a rural area, does their song sound less sexy because it's perhaps less complex? Because like you said, it's like a different, you know, not enough syllables maybe. Yeah, this is something that we've been trying to ask and we have not gotten to the bottom of yet. Oh, um, how come? It, yeah, because the birds are actually a little bit too flexible. So they actually <laughs> change the song right away. Yeah, I know, right? So if you take a bird from the city or the country and you give it noise or you take the noise away, um, they start to do different things. So they might sing the same syllables, but sing them a bit lower or higher. Because mm-hmm. I've even played them high noise and they started to sing lower. So for some, it's actually quite a bit of a flexible thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, is that um, having a song not from the location that you're trying to get a maiden mm-hmm. isn't necessarily a bad thing. Right. It, that female wants to outbreed. So if ah. she's looking for a sexy accent, this mm-hmm. might actually be an advantage for you to be from somewhere else. You you come off as exotic to her. <laughs> exactly. So she knows she's going to get a bit of a different genetic material than maybe if she, you know, just got with Joe from next door. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess it's almost like a sign of you're unlikely to inbreed if you breed with this you know, accented bird or whatever. Oh, very interesting. So um, can birds get to a really high pitch that we can't hear? Is that possible? I'm just thinking of like a dog whistle. You know how dogs can hear a really high pitch? Do birds ever sing in such a pitch that we as humans can't hear them? There are a few species. They're very small that can go to that limit of mm-hmm. what, what humans can hear. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not like bats. They don't really live up in the ultrasonic area um most of their songs we can we can hear right okay and is there any birds that have been so disadvantaged by you know the human development and and especially noise when it comes to their bird songs 
Um, absolutely. So in this sort of field of like urban ecology, we kind of, we've sort of, uh, develop these terms to describe how certain animals respond to city development. Mm-hmm. Um, we can call them an urban avoider. So if you find that a city becomes developed and you just don't find a species anymore, that's probably an urban avoider. Either they've, um, you know, they just can't survive in the city or they're just like, nah, this isn't for me and and peace on out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the second one is an urban um, adapter. So these are ones that have stayed in the city and they might not have many advantages. So they might actually still be suffering some reproductive um, challenges or, you know, challenges finding food or they might be eating different things um, or behaving differently, but they're still persisting in those mm-hmm. environments. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last one we call urban exploiters. And these are actually birds or other animals that in fact really love living in the city. Um, They find that resources are plentiful. Um, Humans aren't that big of a nuisance to them. They can make their home wherever, or, you know, there are actually more opportunities. There are fewer predators for them potentially, um, and they just love it. And so they, their populations explode. So yeah, I mean, different animals responded to cities differently. We think that um, acoustic, adaptation um, is one small component of that that helps um, species become urban adapters or urban exploiters mm-hmm. um, it's definitely not the biggest component but it it does play a role especially for species that um, you know for which acoustic communication is really important right and so a, a part of your work is also actually seeing how urban development impacts animals did you ever find that there's a particular urban development you know whether it be you know houses or malls or you know anything specific that is really detrimental to animals um so like lack of green space is definitely the thing that affects animals the most. Mm-hmm. The one of the other things that tends to not get as much airtime anymore um, is the impact of windows. So what? Um, skyscrapers uh, and have reflective <sighs> windows that reflect the the um, the skyline mm. of, around them, and thousands and thousands and thousands of birds die in cities every evening, night and dawn by flying into skyscraper windows. Oh, no. um, and we do have ways of, of preventing this. So mm-hmm. we have very reflective um, stickers or, or, you know, creating some um, UV reflection in our windows mm-hmm. that um, birds can see and therefore is not, um, not quite as dangerous. Yeah. Um, but yeah, especially at night when you, you've got your lights on um, and, you know, everything's, yeah, reflected or, or even looks like they can fly through it. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually get quite a quite a lot of deaths that way. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's it's not necessarily the noise, but it's actually the infrastructure that is that is the most detrimental, it seems, in terms of songbirds. And this is particularly important when we're talking about things that migrate mm-hmm. and not migratory um, path paths, sort of flyways that go through major cities, mm-hmm. um, especially in Europe and North America, um, and and for birds that that migrate, they often do so at night, so it can be quite. Uh, 
quite tricky. Right. Um, and there was one article that I actually came upon of birds incorporating trash when it comes to, to building their nests and stuff. Do you mind giving me a bit of commentary on that and kind of yeah. explaining that and whether that's a good or, partic- or perhaps a bad thing? Yeah. I, yeah. Again, we don't really know mm. because it could be either. Um, yeah, there's been a few studies out there that have tried to look at how birds nest in in urban areas. Mm-hmm. Um, a study that I did, we looked at museum specimens um, across Australia. And um, so we, we looked at nests that had been collected for over 200 years. So back to like 18 20s oh you must be finding Um, like really old trash in there (laughs) yeah so absolutely so you could see like we had trash in human trash in almost like since the beginning of when these were really um most of the trash though that birds used to incorporate were sort of natural materials a lot of paper um and i'm thinking candy wrappers yeah there weren't a lot of candy wrappers in the 1800s though. Oh no. So, oh, okay. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, it was mostly newspaper actually. Ah. And in fact, some of the newspaper you could still read. Oh, that nest. is so cool. So incredible. Yeah, it was really, really cool. Um, a lot of newspaper, a lot of cotton thread mm. um, or clothing or lint hmm. from, you know, from clothing. Yeah. Um, wool that sort of thing now were there any uh, kind of like dangerous goods because i know back in the day people Mm. didn't really understand like the use of arsenic and they would incorporate things into their clothes the use of lead and kind of incorporate into everyday items did you find anything that was so extravagant like that um so we didn't test for heavy metals (laughs) i'm sure there probably were some Mm. um what what concerned us though is once we got to about the 1950s, we started to see our first plastic items, which corresponds to the beginning of when plastic started to be mass produced mm-hmm. and um, sold. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it started to take over. So there was this like um, transformation from, you know, building nests with paper and leaves and twigs mm-hmm. to building nests with a lot of things like fishing wire, baling twine was a really big one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Plastics. And then even, and then later on, even incorporating um, a lot harder materials. So we got things like metal um, and one of our newest nests from 2018, I believe it was, mm-hmm. um, was a magpie nest that was almost exclusively made from coat hangers. <laughs> Whoa. So, yeah, so about it so by 2018 about 30% of nests had at least some um human material and then mostly plastic and metal um mm-hmm. by that point. But yeah, we found things like um headphones in nests. We found a pair of 3D movie glasses in a nest. Um there were all sorts of of things that you would consider junk. Mm-hmm. Uh, nest barbed wire too oh yeah i mean it's great protection for their nest exactly (laughs) i'm not going to get your rabies if you build your nest out of barbed wire exactly so maybe it's an adaptation (laughs) yeah exactly so you know some people have found that incorporating certain materials like um cigarette butts in nests actually reduces the parasites that you find in nests now we didn't find that Mm -hmm. but we did find that potentially using eucalypt leaves 
might actually deter parasites. So it might depend on where you are in the world and what kind of materials you have as to whether um, the use of human materials is advantageous or not. Again, we don't know things like, does it make the nest stronger? Does it mean that you can reuse it year after year a bit better or or things like that? Mm -hmm. are, are, are babies more likely to survive in nests with human materials? These are all questions we don't actually know the answer to yet. And we think are probably pretty species specific as well. What mm -hmm. are the birds eating and how are they interacting with their nests? Um, and not just, you know, it's, it's probably not a straightforward answer. Right. So I guess what do you have in terms of suggestions for us as like your, you know, common lay person on what we can do to protect our, especially our city birds and to make, you know, these birds that are perhaps not surviving the city as well more comfortable in the city what is it that we can do um yeah I mean I'm gonna do the like preaching thing of you know native plants native plants native mm -hmm. plants don't feed birds terrible food <laughs> yeah don't feed birds um, period I think don't like feed birds period I, but, I, I mean if you have to go to the pet store and grab some mealworms because yeah. if you're if you're addicted to it, then, you know, that's probably exactly. their best bet. But definitely stop um, feeding birds bread. Like, that is oh so God, bad yeah. for them. I see it so all bad. the time. People are – and listen, I – I fell into this too because when I was a kid I loved feeding the ducks our stale bread but that's what something my parents taught me and it wasn't until I became you know a biologist not even an adult a biologist that I was like oh my gosh oh, yeah, it's exactly. terrible yeah. for it's them really right so yeah bring seeds mealworms like you said go to the pet store and and yeah. get things yeah, like exactly. that yeah anything I mean, else um yeah so like you know, in terms of noise, it's sort of like, well, how do you how do you deal with noise, right? Like, it's mm. just such a pervasive problem. But, you know, there are, have been instances where we've made recommendations to um, city parks and botanic gardens to switch um, from using things that use diesel to things that use electric um, in terms of, you know, their buggies or their um, gardening equipment. And it makes it so much quieter. Mm -hmm. And they're actually finding that some of the songbirds are in fact coming back. So it does even little things that, you know, can reduce noise a little bit in natural areas um, or or even in city parks might actually help um you know, the, the local wildlife and the local bird life to be heard better. And then, you know, it's really, it's a lot nicer for us too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is there any particular songbird that you kind of hope can come back to the city? You know, maybe one that has left the city to its rural of life and maybe you wish could come back? I don't know. I think we've got some pretty awesome city birds in Australia, to mm -hmm. be honest. Like we've got butcher birds and and magpies that just sing these most beautiful songs. One of my favorite is also the Silver Eye. I did my entire PhD on that. And they're the ones that have these amazing city dialects. And they're everywhere, but they're not very noticeable because they're small. So huh. I think, like, I wouldn't really wish the city life on any bird that mm. wouldn't like it here. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I think that um, we could help We could help our, our birds that have become urban adapters um, not necessarily the exploiters because they're taking over a little bit. But definitely the <laughs> I'm urban thinking adapter. ibis and pigeons yeah. and things. <laughs> like I love ibis too, and they're they're survivors. And, oh and yeah, I full credit. Um, and you know, but things like noisy miners as well. Like mm -hmm. you know, they they do take over a little bit. But I think 
yeah, it, accommodating for for urban adapters by by having native plants around and and keeping the greenery sort of mixed, sort of that sort of land sharing instead of land sparing type thing mm-hmm. um, can can help a lot. So um, that's that's what I would say. Yeah. That's wonderful. Well, you heard it here first, okay? We have to take care of the birds that we do have in the city because we definitely don't want to lose a little bit of nature that we do have in the city, right? It's really quite beautiful, and we can't always get out into, um, you know, the beautiful forests that we have. In, in in my case in Sydney, in your case in Queensland, you know, we, we don't always get around there. But in the city, we do want to preserve what we do have. Um, Dominique, thank you so much for joining me today. This is wonderful. Uh, I hope you had a great time. Uh, You have been listening to Boiling Point, uh, your weekly science show, and we will see you next week. Together, listen to the sound.